So I guess I'll begin with the topic. It's really a continuation from last week, um, talking about the ten perfections, otherwise known as the uh, the potomies. The ten perfections are. How many people were here last week? So I can know a couple of us. So, ten perfections are thought to be the qualities um, that one must perfect in order to become enlightened, fully awake. An arahant or a Buddha. Uh, I mean, there's... I'm not going to get into the semantics of arahant versus Buddha. Well, I can't. So, so uh, a Buddha is someone who has... Uh, through their own um, effort, through the, without any teacher, uh, kind of found the freedom of suffering for themselves. And an arahant is someone who, kind of uh, using that teaching, like the teaching of the Buddha, uh, finds the relinquishment or the freedom from suffering for themselves. So that's the difference there. Both things... Uh, require from the Buddha's teaching both things require the perfection of these ten qualities these ten aspects and they're found you know the Buddha had all these lists and brilliant to put things in a way that could be pretty easily uh, understood and memorized repeated and practiced So these ten perfections are um, things that we all know about, and they're put in a, a way, the way I understand it, from easiest to hardest. So uh, last week I talked about uh, giving or generosity, dana, being you know the easiest to practice, and possibly maybe the easiest to perfect in is is what uh, maybe harder for some than others, right? That's the other thing here. But from the Buddhist uh, perspective, uh, it's the easiest one to practice, to master, to perfect. And also I, I began to talk about virtue or uh, ethical integrity uh, last week. Those are the first two. And they also kind of play off each other. They work into each other. Very often you'll see Donna and uh, ethical integrity next to each other. And there's a whole, I give a whole nother talk on, uh, and I was going to, like, didn't find my notes, which, uh, if, Allison, if that was you that pulled my notes aside, thank you. <laughs> I was like, where are my notes? Anyway, uh, there's, uh, a, a, what's, what's kind of called the basic teaching, which is Donna, Sila, Bhavana. Bhavana means meditation practice, and that's kind of the way that the Buddha began um, his instruction to monks and to lay people, nuns, uh, is begin by being being generous and uh, having a, a quality of generosity in your heart, and then live in an ethical way so that you're actually relieving yourself from suffering through that, uh, just through the ethical behavior alone. And then, uh, then try some meditation. 
but we do it a little bit backwards here. We kind of jump right into the meditation part and then realize my mind is out of control and I'm living when in greed and you know lust or whatnot. You know. So that's what I talked about last week. And and then the next uh, on the list, maybe I'll just go through the whole list and then come back to uh, what's called renunciation. So giving the first uh, virtue or blameless conduct, renunciation being the third, fourth uh, is wisdom or panya, the fifth uh, is energy or virya, the sixth is patience, the seventh uh, aspect of uh, the potamis or perfections is truthfulness. The eighth, determination. The ninth, loving kindness. And the tenth is equanimity. So I'm not sure if I'm going to get through all those today. Uh, But we'll see how it goes. I just thought I would give the whole list now. I remember when I first... Heard the word renunciation. To be a renunciate. To be a Buddhist, you have to be a renunciate. And I just was immediately uncomfortable. What do I have to give up? I immediately thought, what do I have to give up? Not that. No, not not that. And I talked um, a little bit last week about, I think maybe I gave a little pre- Talking about renunciation, when I went, um, you know, I've been to stayed in a few monasteries, but one particular monastery, um, which is you know in the Ajahn Chah lineage, and I really contemplated uh, becoming a monk. I, I, I really contemplated staying, but then the weight of what that really meant, as I talked to some of the novice monks and the you know the monks that were like two years in. Because in this tradition, uh, there are some places in Thailand and Burma, Southeast Asia, where you can just go and be a monk or a nun for you know a week, a month, you know, three months, and then leave. Right. And they actually do that in Thailand as part of a rite of passage. But not in this tradition. In this tradition, it's kind of like you really commit. You're not just not just a vacation. And I don't think it's a vacation even in even if you go for a month. It's a serious commitment. But there's something about this particular Ajahn Chah's uh, forest uh, lineage that it's um, it's a weighty decision. And so there I was practicing with all these monks and living in the in this monastery lifestyle, and I was like, "Oh, this is great! I could totally just do this forever." And then about a week and a half in, <laughs> I was like, well, there isn't any of this here, and there's definitely none of that, and started thinking of all the things that I wanted, that I was missing, that I would miss, that I possibly might miss, have I, if I made the decision. And then once that started, you know, it was all downhill. (laughs) I was really noticing a lot of desire. 
which is what happens when you go on meditation retreat, which is what happens anytime you're working with renunciation, which is why it's so important. So the word renunciate, it just sounded so, like I talked about last week, some of this language um, is pretty, it feels pretty religious, you know, to be a renunciate. Uh, and it, it is. Yeah. I actually like the word relinquish. It's a relinquishment. Same thing. But it just feels better to me. Rolls off my tongue a little easier without, a little, without hesitation. And so, what the Buddha was pointing towards in this uh, quality to be perfected is the ability to let go. To let go of what? What's called sensual desire. This kind of incessant need to have pleasurable experience. All the time. Because the reality of that is false. But the idea of that is something that we totally obsess on. Maybe it's just me. And actually this weekend was a really good um, practice in letting go. Because I, I drove up north and I didn't really have a... I wasn't going anywhere. I just There were some plans, you know. Not really. Just kind of going, driving... So there was tiredness and then trying, no, no hotel set up. It was 4th of July weekend. There was all this, there was, so there was, there was this like always like a need to kind of want to control things so that I'm comfortable and I don't have to stress out and then letting go and just kind of being in whatever was happening. Uh, traffic and then letting go. And then actually those, so we're in, in Santa, in Santa Rosa, uh, 4th of July and there's just a lot of traffic and, um, and then all of a sudden there's like fireworks just right there. And we're like, oh, fireworks. So that was a, there was a letting go into the, oh, we can just be with fireworks, you know, and not having to figure out where the hotel is, and how to get out of this traffic, and, and just moments like that. So I think of that kind of relinquishing of control, relinquishing of um, desire to have it all figured out, to know. This is one of the ways I, I think about um, relinquishment or uh, renunciation. I think I talked last week about uh, you know generosity being one way that um, the Buddha talked about working with greed. You know, there's... Uh, these three, uh, they're called the three poisons sometimes, the three darts. Uh, one of the Pali words uh, is the kilesas, which means torments of mind, which is my favorite translation, known as greed, hatred, and delusion, or ignorance. And so greed, hatred, and ignorance, our delusion come in... Uh, Various forms. But ultimately in order to find freedom from suffering, we need to overcome. Or as uh, one of my friends likes to say, destroy. And even as Ajahn Chah has said. uh, And just 
to catch you guys up, Ajahn Chah is, um, was a Thai forest master who was Jack Cornfield's teacher, uh, who Jack Cornfield is, you know, one of the, uh, kind of most well-known, I guess, Western Vipassana teachers, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, uh, Mary Grace Orr and Noah Levine were both, uh, students of Jack Cornfield and I'm students of both of them. So that's kind of what I mean when I say lineage. And so the monastery in Thailand that I was at was, was there, was, uh, Ajahn Chah's monastery in Thailand. So these three poisons, uh, one of the ways of working with greed is to increase generosity, right? To increase the, uh, the quality of a generous heart. The other way is to relinquish uh, or to renounce. So if we're finding ourselves being greedy or covetousness or... Um, you know, just miserly. The way there's two ways to work with that. The the first way is to be generous, and then the other way, especially if it's much more kind of obsessive or addictive, which is something that I'm pretty familiar with. The kind of addictive, obsessive, I gotta have, I want, I want more of, more now, more now, um, which is really common, say, in America, uh, in, in America. I've been definitely in some American towns this weekend. It was great. So to counter that, uh, to just work on relinquishing, letting go of, and so, the uh, the precepts that I also talked about last week are a way to really play with that too. Like be wise with speech, to be wise with sexuality, to abstain from substances that cloud the mind. You know? So that's your kind of introduction to uh, uh, which ones. And I think I said actually, I, I gave you guys an assignment right? uh, to just kind of play with that for the week. And maybe pick the one that you really immediately didn't want to do out of the five precepts and just open up to that for the week. Right? Um, I've been given that, assi- that assignment. And uh, working with renunciation can be really helpful. And it can be the, the just the renunciation of mind, the relinquishing of the need to know. Or the relinquishing of the of the desire to figure it out can be so freeing. Uh, for some, you know, even going on retreat, uh, there's an opportunity to take eight precepts, which means that you uh, only eat breakfast and then lunch, and then you relinquish the evening meal. And that can be a huge deal, especially since on retreat, that's really the only thing to look forward to. It's like, it's like a meal, you know? It's been half the day just being like, I wonder what's going to be tempeh, something or rather today, you know? But then to just 
And I remember uh, taking this on a two-month retreat, just deciding to not do the the last meal, which also meant no snacks or anything like that. I mean, you could drink a little juice on occasion. Um, And finding how freeing it was once I got rid of the kind of obsessive quality of like, am I going to be okay? You know, all this like the nervousness of like, I mean, sure. And I, I remember talking to people now that I teach retreats, going into retreat, and they're like, I don't know how many meals, there's only two meals, and I, am I going to be okay? I mean, I should bring some extra, you know, protein bars, and you'll be fine. And if you're not, you know, I mean, that's the other thing about, we each have to kind of take on what we take on. That, for me, was a really good practice. I, I also did another relinquishment, because I also I love cheese, Loved everything cheese. Brought the the main reason I'm not vegan yeah, is because of the cheese. Like milk, yeah, I could do without, but cheese. Mm. <laughs> so I was on a retreat, and I was particularly gung ho. And I was like, okay, I'm going to not have the evening meal, and I was like, I'm going to I'm going to just cut out cheese. And then immediately, right. Cheese, you know, and then it feels like every meal that came was melted this and you know creamy sauce that, and I was just oh man. And that's the practice, you know, is even though you love it, is it causing you some kind of harm? These are you know some simple examples, but uh, also I was given the assignment to let go of sexual contact, contact, and relationship. As a training teacher. And immediately, no. That's why I didn't become a monk. <laughs> Damn you. And it, 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 it proved to be very helpful. Very helpful. To see the way the mind obsesses on things. Sensual pleasure. Relationship. Being okay, being loved, being lovable. So much suffering can be caused by that. So it was extremely helpful. Or maybe, maybe I smoke a little too much weed. Or maybe smoking any weed at all. Is just not conducive to meditation. I thought it was when I started meditating. I thought that's what it was all about, right? Mm-hmm. Smoke a little weed, get all Zen, you know, Buddha-like. But that didn't really work out for me. So some, maybe that is the space, you know. So it's like, or alcohol, or it's really the the invitation with renunciation is there's the extreme of. Go be a monk or a nun and take, you know, 227 or 300 and I don't even know how many the women take. 31, I think it is, 331 precepts and just go full bore, you know, hardcore, right? Or uh, the more difficult, in, well, it depends, but I think it's difficult, is to how do you can, how do you stay engaged and work with these and actually learn to balance in your life? That obsessive, kind of greedy quality 
of give me more since pleasure is good. So the in the suttas, the definition around renunciation that uh, renunciation has the characteristic of departing from sense pleasures and existence. I'll get to that in a minute. Its function is to verify their unsatisfactoriness. To verify their unsatisfactoriness. That is key. That's what I found with both with both drugs and cheese. Kinda. And <laughs> Definitely the meal, like, you know, I would, I remember, I remember when I started getting back to the meal, like started, I started, there was a period of time where I, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll eat the third meal and see what happens. And I would just stuff myself and be like, oh, this is so unpleasant. You know, I couldn't meditate. I just wanted to eat. I just wanted to sleep. I mean, like where I was like, oh, never mind. It was, then, then, it, then it was like a letting go. Cause I was, I felt like I was depriving myself. So then I was like, Rawr. you know, and we do that. I've done so good. I know people that are clean and sober that um, uh, are clean and sober for a period of time. And they're like, oh, I'm doing so good now. I should totally celebrate. <laughs> and go get hammered. Right? I did so good for so long. Like six months. I didn't smoke any weed or drink. And now I'm going to go do whatever, you know. It's just something to think about. Is it satisfactory? I was talking with someone recently who was talking about coming to that decision while here, while practicing, while beginning um, on meditation and whatnot, seeing uh, the retreats and whatnot, seeing, yeah, you know, drugs and alcohol just have become unsatisfactory. The way I view it is that, for me, it served a purpose. That purpose long outweighed, or it long stopped being useful, and I continued to use it. Then a period of kind of urgency took place, or something had to be done, and I made a decision. So seeing the unsatisfactoriness in desire, in sense pleasure, uh, is helpful. Craving, really, is what mostly what we're talking about. So its manifestation is uh, the withdrawal from them. So the really the pulling back, like we're talking about. Um, and then this is something that I think is super important. A sense of spiritual urgency. Uh, or in Pali, uh, Bob talks about this a lot. Samvega. Samvega is this, this is not working. Moment of clarity. You know, whatever uh, somewhat unskillful strategy you have to avoid suffering. The, the kind of it's not working. And then which can uh, oftentimes propel people into spiritual practice. Going to their first retreat. Meditating for the first time, whatever, you know, going to, I don't know, church or reading, picking up a book or, you know, whatever it is. This, it's, I think it's compounded with the, okay, there's a feeling of unsatisfactoriness. There's a, a sense of spiritual urgency. And then there's like a, a window opens. And then people step through. 
Meditation, I think, is actually a form of renunciation. That's kind of what we're doing here. Aim the attention, sustain the attention, and then all this stuff is still happening, but as often as we can, notice what's where the mind goes, because it's still going there, and then come back with a sense of friendliness and kindness and kindness. This is renunciation. So there's this uh, this line, right? The characteristic of departing from sense, pleasure, and existence. So there's this way in which uh, this is about selfing. Relinquishment of this idea of selfing. Of creating an identity of being somebody. If only I was, then I'd be. This is the kind of craving for existence. That becomes just so tiresome. You know, uh, recently I was saying maybe some of you were on a retreat. I was teaching up at uh, IRC, and I was talking about the the uh, being on retreat myself and beginning to see the themes of self, the teacher self, or the you know son self, or the you know therapist self or the, you know, whatever, all of the, and even like old selves that had died off, that would then re-emerge. You can't do that. You're like this. Oh, I am? I've been like that in 15 years. Oh, no, but you're still like that. You know, this story is is a creation of self. It's this kind of craving for existence that we lock onto. Letting go, relinquishing those stories of self is freeing. But don't take my word for it. You have to do this for yourself. Let go of self. Yourself. By yourself. With others. I don't know. Something like that. So the proximate cause is spiritual urgency. Some Vega. So in the story of the Buddha, there's this um, moment where the Buddha comes to this realization that life isn't the way he thought it was supposed to be. Uh, where he sees the the three signs, you know, uh, the a, a sick person, a dying person, a, or an old person, uh, a sick person, and a, a dead person. And he's kind of like, what is going on here? Because he hadn't really, he was sheltered, very sheltered. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I think this also can be really metaphorical that we just don't notice, right? You know, we don't notice, especially when we're younger. And then maybe people we'd start knowing start dying or getting sick or getting old or close, people close to us. And there may be this sense of urgency. So then uh, as the Buddha in, his, in, the story, in this story, as the Buddha is like, you know, uh, disheartened and disturbed and like what is going on here? He sees the fourth sign. Which is a renunciate, a monk, 
someone who has shaven their head, let go of all their jewelry and their fancy clothes and their identity of I am this way and I dress this way and you're this way and you dress that way and just taken on this this kind of uh, universal uh, look, if you will, of the the monastic or the renunciate. And there's this, um, there's this kind of line, and I, I have to paraphrase it, but the line when somebody goes from taking, uh, becoming, being a householder like you know us, and then moving into taking robes, there's this line of where they they basically relinquish the existence of that life and say, you know, uh, I I want the comfort basically you know I'm, I'm giving into the comfort of the simple life they don't have to decide what to wear every day that even even just that I have friends of mine one of my friends uh, who has wears gray kind of I don't know docker kind of clothes pants and a white and white shirts and that's all that he wears gray and white for like 15 years. And, I, and it, you know, it took me about 8 years to be like, dude, what's up with this? <laughs> at first I thought he just liked, you know, but he's like, it's just, it's a part of my spiritual practice. He also takes on the uh, uh, practice of uh, uh, silence on Sundays. So he just spends a whole day in silence on Sunday, every Sunday as part of his practice. So the invitation is uh, uh, you can go and shave your head and your eyebrows and, you know, join a monastery or, you know, go to India or, you know, you can do that. You can go to the extreme and it's, you know, it's, it's very helpful. Mm-hmm. Or you can stay engaged. Uh, which much, which, which to me means you have to be much more vigilant, much more active in your engagement. You know, in what does it mean to be giving up this or that? And what are you giving up? And what are you getting? That's why I like the, the, the term relinquish. Because it's, it's a letting go of what? You know, so much of it to me is letting go of the struggle. Which is what I felt when I was in that monastery in Thailand. The, I felt the, the relief of the relinquishment of creating the idea of all of the ideas of self and being and wanting and needing. And it was all, it was very freeing. It was all just really taken care, taken care of. Yeah. But, you know, I'm here. This is what happened. So, yeah. Did you have a question? Uh, you have spoken about Buddha um, and his uh, rebel mm-hmm. nature, certainly. 
curious what the thoughts were on the swing, or even from a certain perspective, the balance between his youthful life wherein he loves want for nothing, mm-hmm. and to say the three sons mm-hmm. that you're talking about, the relationship between someone who would be sheltered to that degree, such as so how necessary is to one side of complete um, immersion in sensory mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Um, you know every kind of complete heedlessness want, yeah right and mm-hmm. satisfied how important might that be to the actual process of swimming to the other side to mm-hmm. true renunciation in other words how can you really you know relinquish something that you perhaps don't really have an awareness Mm-hmm. I don't know, it just got me to really wondering how necessary the first part of the story was to mm-hmm. the second part of the story mm-hmm. where, you know, all of these teachings are really focused. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great point. Uh, for me, the question, like as I heard you, I, I, I was thinking about, um, like when I see, and I'm not, I don't mean to offend anyone in this room if this falls as a relation to you, like you can relate to it, but uh, people who are maybe raised really wealthy um, and don't really know hunger or want in that way, like uh, the want that can't be satisfied um, because there just isn't anything to satisfy them. So, and then they relinquish their uh, wealth and they, you know, kind of become homeless. I kind of see it as like that, like, like, why, why, why does that happen? Hmm. Maybe, I mean, you know, some of the people I've talked with that fall into that category, it's to actually experience what that's like, you know, but then there's this like hate of it or the other extreme when people have nothing and then they gain a little bit and then they get really kind of like ego based around their money, you know, I don't have an answer, but I just think about in, in our day and time, those two extremes around wealth and class. I mean, I'm sure there's lots more we could talk about about that, we can have discussion about. Um, but I feel like uh, uh, the important thing here, and I think in the story of the Buddha, is, uh, and it's, you know, it's a story. It's an archetypal story. And can, we can take from it what we need or want, you know, what works. But I think for, for to follow that, to be so sheltered and then so appalled, right? Like, let's say somebody that's never understood racism or seen racism or experienced racism, and then they're in college and they see it really, really clearly, and what do they do? And they're white upper class, you know, Protestant, whatever, you know, I'm just giving you that extreme example, right? And then they're, they fight for racism, right? And they just go to that extreme and they, and they, sometimes they do it, you know, kind of, uh, uh, mm, there's this way of like, they're so appalled by it that they're, they're moved to, to go that direction. So maybe that's kind of another way I can think about it. 
that that's when I think about the Buddhas, that's what the Buddha that did, but there was something, it was the samvega, right? The spiritual urgency that makes the difference, I think, versus maybe the political or whatever, you know. Not the best, I can't think of a, the best example because, you know, this was something that, it was the right moment, you know, that, of time that happened. Heidi, you had something you want to add or? Oh, I was just, I, I myself have had been in circumstances where I've been desperately poor and also been in circumstances of having great luxury. And I think that in some ways having those different situations has been extremely useful in that you've learned that like money doesn't, it doesn't work. It's just like all these other, all the other pleasures. They don't work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of fortunate to have an opportunity Mm -hmm. to try that out. And, you know, it's like eating a whole gallon of ice cream doesn't really make you happy, you know. But sometimes it's good to try it. That's right. That's right. And I, I mean, I'm, it, and what you said there at the end. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. And that's the other side of the story of the Buddha is that he went to the for the farthest opposite extreme. So actually, renunciation is the middle way. Which for us is like what renunciations? That seems pretty extreme, you know. No, no sex, no booze, no, you know, no meat, no, you know, whatever. You know, the the, the decision to renunciate is, seems pretty extreme to us, living in America, you know, or even living in some forms of poverty in this country is still pretty high up, you know, from some places that I've been. So. People, when I talk about renunciation, people often kind of bring that like middle path. Like, is that really the middle path from the from the extremes of where the Buddha was? Yes, and that's why I like to bring it home to we all have to find for ourselves what's true. So to maybe ask yourself, what can you relinquish that will free something up? That's the Importance, I think, of this um, quality. Yes. Last uh, question or, or comment, and then we're going to move on. I'm just not sure what you mean by free something up. You're relinquishing something or free something up. Yeah, so for me, thank you, because I wasn't super clear when I said that, so I appreciate that you brought that up. What I meant was create, you know, like if you let something go, like creating a space for what comes next, for what else might happen. So for me, um, letting go of drugs and alcohol, for example, I didn't, I had no, my best friend, my coping mechanism, the thing that I relied on, depended on, found solace in, and caused a ton of suffering for myself and just about everyone around me. And in relinquishing that, uh, there was, it took some, a little bit of time, <laughs> but there was some space that got created that I did not even know existed. 
So that's what I mean. Yeah. That we won't, it's kind of that what's that, you know, you let go of one thing, you know, you have to actually let go of something before you can really move into the next thing, you know, like relationships, I think they say that. (laughs) It's really let go of the last relationship before you can really move into the new relationship with an open heart and mind. At least that's what people tell me. I don't know. I do believe it to be true. I've found it to be true. So that's kind of what I mean, Liz. I also mean that there's this uh, place of not knowing in in letting go of something, you know, in letting go of that which it, we have we're coveting, we or that which we have desire, which brings us pleasure. But there's some there's some anxiety in that, and that letting go is truly. I think where that where that samvega is, that spiritual urgency can come into play. Where we might, you know, I don't know, and that's why I just said open because it, it, it's different for different people. But to ask yourself that for all of you, what can you let go of? What can you relinquish that is in the way that you know is in the way you've known for years, yet you still cling to it, you know. The ice cream. I, did I ever tell you? Uh, well, I'm sure I have said to some people, but it might not be this group. Um, I have a friend of mine, Pascal, and uh, he's French and uh, French Canadian. And he was talking about how he was on the phone and he was kind of in a breakup or like a difficult conversation. And he hung up the phone. And the way he described it, he's very descriptive. And the way he described it, you know, it was a wall phone. And his refrigerator was right here. And he's having the conversation. And as he was hanging up the phone, he was reaching for the freezer to get ice cream. And he said, and he ate that whole <laughs> quart. It was a quart, I think. He, you know, I, I, I picture because of it's because if it was me, it would be Ben and Jerry's uh, Cherry Garcia. And you throw away the lid, and you just eat the whole thing. Because <laughs> that's. What's in my freezer right now? <laughs> but his awareness as he was doing that was the, oh, wow, this is what, you know, he was talking about desire. He was talking about that craving for sense pleasure, for pleasure, to avoid that which is unpleasant. And we do that. And so that's what this practice of relinquishing is. It's about can we see that space and then can we let go? And, you know, in that moment, he couldn't. And he, he ate, the way he describes it, I ate Eve, everybody that ice cream with full awareness <laughs> of, you know, of trying to avoid uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. Which was also really helpful. Because he saw the unsatisfactoriness of it. If you ever have a chance to sit a retreat with Pascal Akular, he's a wonderful man, wonderful teacher, and a good friend. So I think um, that's enough of, uh, we got through one more. (laughs) So next week we'll, um, we'll keep on moving.